Shalom and thank you for clicking to listen to one of our audio messages. At Tikvat David, we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. We hope that this message will encourage, inform, and inspire you to follow Yeshua and to walk in the pathways of Torah. Enjoy. Okay, we are going to pick up our study of Philippians today in uh, verse uh, 12 of chapter 1. And at this point in chapter 1, Paul is still in his, uh, really in the introductory phase of his letter. Um, he really hasn't uh, gotten uh, quite to the, to the main uh, reason that he's writing um, you know, he's, he's uh, actually, I would say he's like me a little bit and that it takes him a little bit to, uh, to get to his point. And uh, perhaps that's why I, I connect us uh, so well uh, with Paul. We're, we're both uh, not necessarily so economical uh, with our words here. But um, Craig Keener uh, notes in the InterVarsity Press uh, Bible Background Commentary, which is a great volume of the New Testament version. John Walton did the Old Testament version of the uh, IVP Bible Background Commentary, but uh, Craig Keener did the New Testament version. He's a great New Testament scholar, and he notes that um, Greek letters, um, similar to Greek speeches, uh, usually uh, included a narrative component leading up to the circumstances for writing. So that's really what Paul's doing. He's giving his his narrative uh, circumstances, and then he's going to really get to the point of, of why he's writing uh, his letter. And I think it's just kind of ironic as I'm you know as we're going through uh, uh, this part of of Paul's uh, of the letter. This letter in particular, you know, here Paul in a sense is in quarantine, and I know many of us uh, here with this uh, coronavirus situation, we are either semi quarantine or maybe totally quarantined. So uh, Paul certainly uh, is writing under restricted circumstances, and we're studying this in some uh, unique and unprecedented certain uh, restrictions. Uh, here in our our day and time, with the uh, being in this coronavirus uh, uh, situation that we're facing in our time, so what Paul's doing here uh, in the first chapter is he's giving them some info on where he finds himself as he's writing. Uh, he's, but I, I would say he's not um, just doing this uh, to reveal some personal information. I think Paul is what he's doing. Um, he has a message for them, but I think he's also seeking to leverage his current circumstances, which he's in prison, uh, in order to drive home the idea that, that he can relate to the suffering that his audience is facing. He, he knows what it's like to be going through hard times and, and to be, you know, to be very limited in, in some ways. So I think that he's, he's you know, emphasizing that uh, to, to help strengthen the points that he's going to make uh, in the letter. So let's read verses 12 through 18, and then we'll have some discussion uh, about these verses. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Okay, so that's 
Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. I want to go back to uh, verse 12 and, and look at that verse carefully. So there in verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So, you know, I, I'm curious to know your thoughts about this as well, but I, I want to just um, introduce my question that I want you to, to be thinking about as you're listening to this by um, reiterating something that I alluded to uh, last week. Keep in mind, you know, Paul is an incredibly godly, seasoned, spirit-filled disciple of Yeshua. And he's also a very clever and well-educated uh, man, and he has strong persuasion skills at his intellectual disposal. Now, keep in mind, uh, just because somebody is persuasive doesn't mean that they're immoral. Um, he, he's not coercing uh, his his audience to, to think in a certain way. He's trying to persuade them. And persuasion skills can be used for good purposes or negative purses, uh, purposes. And clearly Paul is using his persuasive, his skills of persuasion to, uh, you know, to, to convince his listeners of a particular way of thinking. So as we're reading, discussing, and applying this letter, again, we're, we're doing so as people who are um, who are embracing and who are understanding this letter as scripture, as the word of God. But we're also interacting with a human letter and a human letter writer. Uh, and this human letter writer employs various methods and devices to get his point across. So in verse 12, once again, I think Paul, what I'm trying to emphasize here is that Paul is not merely revealing narrative information, but he has an agenda and he's seeking to persuade and he is seeking to leverage his narrative location uh, in order to bring about a certain result in his audience. So as we look at verse 12, we can observe, you know, again, Paul has uh, assessed his imprisonment as a positive thing because in his mind it was as he says, it was advancing the gospel. So, you know, based on what we've we've observed in this letter so far, um, you know, I just want you to be thinking about why might Paul be emphasizing this point uh, here at the beginning of the letter? Why is he he hammering his his what's happening while he's in prison? Well, again, I think he's doing this to shape the thinking of the Philippians. He's writing to encourage them to throughout this letter. He's encouraging them to remain in Christ in the face of other more um, potentially expedient and beneficial options. He knows that the Philippians are suffering for disassociating with idolatry in favor of joining this Yeshua-centered Judaism subgroup in Philippi. So I think what's happening here in verse 12, I think Paul is highlighting that his own imprisonment and suffering has has actually served to advance the gospel. And in parallel fashion, I think Paul is highlighting and emphasizing this because I think he's hoping that the Philippians will see their suffering as serving to advance the gospel as well. So Paul's being honest with them, and he's sharing personal details from life in his world in order to shape how the Philippians will view life in their world. In other words, Paul draws a line between suffering and the advancement of the gospel in his own life, and he's wanting the Philippians to draw the same line in their lives. Well, he goes on in verse 13 to tell us that the gospel has advanced in the sense that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard 
and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, Paul says. Interesting there. So that's an important detail, I think, there at the end of verse 13. Paul says his imprisonment is literally for Christ. So, you know, I just want you to be thinking about that. You know, considering what we know from the rest of the New Testament, um, why do you think Paul was imprisoned for Christ? Because, you know, it wasn't illegal uh, to believe in Yeshua at this point, as far as we know. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to explore a little bit more, why was Paul in prison for Christ? Well, first, as, as we've noted previously, um, we are not sure which prison experience that Paul was, uh, was, was actually in when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. He might have been in Caesarea, which would, or he could have been in Rome, or he, it's possible he could have been somewhere else that's not mentioned in any narrative uh, recollections in the New Testament. Um, so we, we really do lack precise information in trying to nail down his location and therefore even when he wrote the letter. However, the book of Acts does record uh, Paul being arrested and then uh, subsequent prison experiences in, in Caesarea and Rome. So I think that Acts can actually help us in discerning the, the why uh, for the imprisonment uh, that Paul experiences uh, the, you know, when he says he's imprisoned for Christ here in Philippians uh, 1 verse 13. So over in Acts 21, if you want to flip over there, if you have it on your phone, uh, that's fine. But over in Acts 21, uh, we see beginning in verse 27, uh, let's read what Luke records about uh, Paul's imprisonment. So uh, verse, starting in verse 27 in Acts 21, Luke records, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the Torah and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran to them. And when they saw the tribune and all the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Okay, so we can we can stop there. So I think that gives us a pretty pretty good idea. So you know, according to Acts, um, we can we can basically discern two main points of accusation. Um, one is that he's teaching. You know, again, the key here being that these are accusations. One is that Paul is teaching against the Torah and the temple, and then two. The second point of accusation is that Paul's bringing Gentiles into uh, the temple, uh, apparently into areas where Gentiles are not allowed. Now, really, I'd say this is one big accusation that we can kind of piece together here. My take is it all has to do with Paul's role as apostle uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, just like with with most accusations, there's there's probably some, some truth uh, to be found in this story. Actually, if we look at verse 29... Um, you know, it says here, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with Paul in the city, 
and they supposed that Paul brought him to the temple. So clearly Paul's hanging out with Gentiles, but there's nothing you know that, that indicates that Paul actually brought, brought Trophimus into the temple. But even if Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple, you know, there were areas where Gentiles could go. So this is this is kind of a you know, there were there were clearly some accusations here that were were stretching uh, the truth significantly to get uh, to get Paul arrested. But this all has something to do with a Jewish response to how Paul is, you know, relating to Gentiles. So the main point here, kind of just to clean this up, is that Paul gets into trouble. He gets arrested. He gets in prison for Christ specifically because of his apostolic work amongst Gentiles. I, I don't think he's in hot water uh, in most cases in the book of Acts simply because he believes that Yeshua is the Messiah. It's what Paul sees as the implications of Yeshua being the Messiah uh, for members of the nations that gets him arrested and in trouble. It's 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 the kind of stuff, I think, uh, that relates to what we observed and discussed in Philippians 1.1 when Paul referred to the Philippians as agios, when he referred to them as as holy ones, uh, Paul is you know it's 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 a big enough deal that Paul is terming Gentiles um, as holy ones, um, as saints. I mean that's a big enough deal. But also the transformed nature of Gentiles into holy ones because they are in Christ, uh, and and their inclusion into Abraham's family as Gentiles. It has, in Paul's mind and in the mind of the apostles, it has concrete implications on the ground. And, and, and as that's unfolding in real time for Paul, it's causing a stir because most other Jews in the book of Acts and throughout Paul's letters, most other Jews are not persuaded like Paul that the Messianic era had dawned. Uh, because of Yeshua's death and resurrection. And thus, most other Jews are not ready for the way in which Paul is redrawing the boundary lines of humanity and including Gentiles within the realm of holy ones. So back to our text in Philippians, you know, I think Paul, you know, we, we can see why Paul was in prison for Christ because the ramifications of his gospel was creating a stir and really getting him into trouble wherever he went among other Jews who were not so persuaded. Okay, so back to our text. Um, Paul goes on to say, now we're at uh, back in Philippians 1, so verse 14, uh, Paul goes on to say, uh, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, just curious, as you're looking on uh, at, at the text there, I'm, I'm curious if anyone sees any more shaping going on here. Um, you know, Paul, again, I, I'm very confident that he is sharing what I think is factual information, but I'm pretty sure he also has some rhetorical um, uh, intentions as well. So I'm curious if you see that at all. I think, I personally, the way I read this, I think Paul is citing the positive response of these brothers uh, around him in prison, this positive response of these brothers uh, in prison, they're responding a certain way positively to his suffering. And I think Paul is highlighting that in order to generate a similar response from the Philippians uh, to both uh, Paul's suffering and, and to their own. It's as if, I think it's as if Paul is saying, look, uh, the brothers here where I am, 
can see how my imprisonment for Christ is advancing the gospel. What's happening is that they are becoming more bold and less fearful about their status and association with Yeshua. So, dear Philippians, uh, this is what I hope will happen to you also. I'm hoping that my suffering and your own suffering will be interpreted by you as furthering the gospel. And thus, my hope is that you will not be persuaded by those who seek to pull you away from allegiance to Yeshua within Judaism, which is your present course. Now, uh, Paul, uh, I think so. Again, I think that's that's he's describing facts, but he's doing so uh, in the hopes that it's going to help the Philippians to interpret what's happening around them in a positive way. Now, uh, Paul goes in a direction that I'm less confident that I understand uh, in verse 15. I have some thoughts about it, but um, it's it's a tricky uh, text to me, and I wish we knew exactly what he was trying to do here. But uh, he says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Um, so that's that's an interesting text. I wish uh, people listening to this, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well, um, it, because maybe you could share some things that maybe I'm not quite seeing in the text. So, uh, But, uh, you know, again, I'm not... I'm not real confident as to why Paul brings up this point about some preaching Yeshua from envy and rivalry and some from goodwill. Clearly, that's what was happening. Now, but but let's just kind of broaden this a little bit. In this section, Paul's referring uh, directly to groups uh, that are in his location. That's that's who he's referring to as, as the brothers uh, in, in verse 14 that he's referring to seem to be the ones that fall into these two categories in verse 15. Those who are preaching Christ positively with positive motivations and those who are preaching Christ with negative motivations. Those are the people around him, the brothers. But I'm thinking that Paul is bringing these uh, these brothers uh, and categories. Um, he's, he's speaking of them in this letter to the Philippians because he knows of something that is parallel or similar going on among the Philippian disciples and in their small community. In other words, among the brothers in Paul's prison situation, um, from where he's writing, there are some who are driven by rivalry and envy and selfish ambition, and there are others driven by goodwill. Well, if we peek over to chapter 2 in Philippians, we see that Paul addresses similar attitudes that are present among the Philippians. Note over there in chapter two, verse three, Paul says, uh, "Do nothing out of selfish, or do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." So, on some level, I think that Paul is indirectly speaking to the positive and negative behaviors and motives of the Philippians, at least what he's he's heard about them. And he's doing that by speaking of the positive and negative behaviors of the brothers around him in prison. I think he sees some parallel things going on. Now, some may find Paul's statement in verse 18 to be surprising. Um, There he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So, uh, you know, it sounds like what Paul's saying there, and then on some level, 
Uh, he's okay with people preaching Christ in, in pretense, uh, which he associates, you know, there with rivalry, envy, and selfish ambition. So what what is Paul saying here? What what's he what's he authorizing, if you will? Well, I, again, I, I really wish we had more of Paul's thinking. I'd love to hear him flesh it out. Um, generally speaking, I think what's going on here is that Paul is communicating, or at least what's coming out, is that Paul, he's not he's not an all or nothing kind of a guy. He's not black and white about everything. Um, contrary to the way he is often uh, presented. Uh, Paul's statement here reminds me of something that I heard an old uh, pastor friend of mine uh, used to say. I remember he's an old Southern Baptist pastor, and he said, God can use crooked crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And, And that's really true. God uses all kinds of people every day to advance his kingdom uh, and and very few people have completely pure motives in doing that. Um, and I think Paul's statement here is consistent um, also with many perspectives in Judaism. Generally speaking, Judaism would rather uh, someone doing only one mitzvah rather than no mitzvahs. Um, you know, a, a question that's come up several times through the years, uh, the last five years since I've been the rabbi of Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue in Atlanta, a few people have asked me about just the, the sort of the process of negotiating, um, you know, their limited ability to observe Shabbat. You know, there, there have been people and there still are people that really would love to sanctify and set, a, set apart Shabbat. Uh, more, let's just say more completely, more thoroughly, more in a more observant way, but they have to work on Shabbat or they've got other, you know, competing factors that that are, you know, play into their Shabbat observance. And so the question is, well, you know, should I, if I can't, if I can't really do Shabbat to a certain extent, you know, should I even light candles? I remember one person very specifically asked me that question, you know, should I light Shabbat candles at work? You know, I can do that, but I feel like a hypocrite. And so my answer to the question was, you know, I think, and again, I was answering in a way that I felt was consistent with with Judaism and 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 even Halakha, and that is do what you can, do what you're able to. And actually, the Didache, uh, an early apostolic, you know, discipleship manual, which we've uh, discussed uh, before, the Didache talks about doing what you can. Uh, again, it's not we're not making a license to to, to lower the standards of observance. Um, uh, either in Torah or in, you know, in Jewish tradition, but we're saying that, you know, it's not all or nothing. It's not black and white. If you can take one step forward in Shabbat observance, um, then that's a good thing. So if you have to work on Shabbat and you're still able to light Shabbat candles, that's better than nothing. And so, you know, put differently, and I'm going to bring this back to Paul, I think that the heart of God that is expressed in Judaism um, beautifully is that God is looking for progress but not perfection, um, and that, that we're all in process. And, and very few of us can actually keep Shabbat uh, in an ideal way. If you can, that's wonderful. So back to Paul. Paul's prison brothers, that he from where he is speaking from, uh, they were preaching Christ with various motives, clearly. Some good and some not so good. And from what we, from what we can tell, the Philippian... Ecclesia, that little community, uh, included characters that were very godly and others that were more divisive and difficult. 
Uh, in verse 17, it's pretty clear that Paul uh, is not happy with those prison brothers who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Um, but in verse 18, he can say that he still rejoices because at least they're still preaching Yeshua. So I think where Paul is going with this for his Philippian audience is, is a call for unity around Yeshua. Um, and I think he's he's trying to say, look, people are going to come at this at various points, but the key is that, that we be unified around Yeshua. So, um, you know, I, I just want to bring this to a close um, by highlighting an appreciation for what I understand to be um, what I think is a, is a gracious and realistic and practical, and I would say even very Pharisaic uh, viewpoint expressed here by Paul. I think Paul's a realist, uh, especially here later in his apostolic career. Um, you know, again, we noted in the introduction um, in the first uh, um, uh, session um, on this that Paul is, you know, he's writing later in his career, and I think he's a more gracious, more humble uh, more reflective uh, Paul, and he doesn't expect perfection from his brothers in prison or the Philippians that he's writing to. Uh, at least for the Philippians, what he does hope to inspire is for them to seek unity around Yeshua, uh, and and he's going to really emphasize that in his letter and and the importance of that. And for uh, for us as well, I think this is very important. You know, we um, just thinking about my own congregation. Um, you know, we have plenty of flaws. Uh, and plenty of characters uh, in our community. And that's true for all of us in our families and in our households and so forth, you know. But I think Paul would encourage us to focus on what we do have. And that is we do have Messiah Yeshua. And we do have unity that he brings through the Holy Spirit. I think the key for us as a synagogue and as, a, and as families and as individuals and uh, is progress and not perfection. And there's going to be some, you know, people that are doing things with motives that are less than pure, uh, but but that's just, that's part of their journey. Um, uh, you know, every week, I think, you know, again, getting back to that, that where I really want to drive this is this concept of progress, not perfection. Every week, if we can grow 1% in our relationship with Hashem, Every week, if we can grow 1% better in how we treat other people, uh, every week, if we can grow, you know, one of the things I really emphasize, um, you know, with my leadership team at, at Tikvah David is, is, is how do we grow 1% better as in how we operate as a synagogue? I mean, everything's not about operations, but, you know, it's just every week I want us to grow 1% in, in how we operate as a synagogue. You know, 1% improvements, 1% progress every week. And after a while, we look back and we've come, we see we've come a long way um, in our relationships and, and in our, you know, keeping them its votes and whatever it may be. You know, I think Paul would support this idea uh, as a realist and as a person who understood that even those of us in Messiah, maybe especially those of us in Messiah, we haven't arrived yet. So may we all unite around Yeshua and in our imperfections, let's remain in him and let's make something 1% better this week. Shalom. Thank you for listening to this audio message from Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue. 
We would love to get to meet you in person sometime at the synagogue. So come join us for Shabbat or one of the holidays. Also, you can join us in building Messianic Judaism, whether you live in the Atlanta area or far away, by financially contributing to our synagogue. You can learn about the options for giving under the Donate tab at tikvatdavid.org. At Tikvat David, we would love to have you stand with us as we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. Shalom.